0: The phone is now the computer in your pocket. It's the most prolific consumer electronics device on the planet. This year, globally, rather alarmingly, there'll be 1.5 billion mobile phones give or take sold. That's 42 every second. Yeah, That's a lot of phones that are out there in the market that need to be responsibly disposed of or repaired or can we find ways to make people use them longer.
1: Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In this month's episode of the Restart Project podcast, I spoke to Ben Wood, the founder of the Mobile Phone Museum and chief analyst at CCS Insight. From Bricks, to clamshells, he tells us about some of the funkier and stranger phones in the collection and shares his favourite examples of mobile phone design. We also discuss some of the most promising trends coming out of CCS Insights Consumer Studies that point towards rapidly increasing support for repairability and extended lifespans of connected electronics.
0: Hello, my name is Ben Wood. I'm the founder and co-curator of the Mobile Phone Museum and the chief analyst at research firm CCS Insight, and I've been working in the mobile industry for over 25 years.
1: Why did you start the Mobile Phone Museum?
0: The Mobile Phone Museum is a charity project that I've set up, which has been alongside my long career in the mobile phone industry. And the reason I started it was because I grew up with quite a design background. I was lucky enough, my father worked in office furniture manufacturing for a company called Herman Miller, who had all sorts of esteemed designers, probably the most prominent one being Charles Eames. And I grew up with a real affinity for product design and how things were made. And I realized when I joined the mobile industry in the early 1990s, that we were in a period of unbelievable innovation and growth and things were changing very very quickly and while I was at Vodafone which is where I started my career the company was transforming and they were remodeling a lot of the offices and in some cases it was quite an engineering-led company and we used to have little labs where you could go and repair things and fix things which is I guess quite relevant for this podcast but those days were changing we were using more of that space for probably sales and marketing uh, desks and those sorts of things and as the labs were dismantled all sorts of interesting equipment and objects were being carried out of the building and put into a skip. And this comprised a few old, big transportable phones. Some on the podcast may be familiar with the old mobile phones that were almost the size of a car battery that you had to lug around. And uh, I saw this going on and and it wasn't an environmental thing. It was more just a social history thing, which was we cannot let these devices be thrown away. They are a very important part of history. And it was on that day that my collecting of mobile phones started and never stopped. And I got to the point where I organically collected hundreds and hundreds of mobile phones and more and more people were giving me phones and I felt I needed a vehicle or an entity that would safeguard the collection so I decided the best thing to do was to set up the mobile phone museum formally and eventually looked at a charity as the best mechanism to do that. So that's the potted history but there's lots of milestones along the way that have contributed to that but it's a very exciting project.
1: Yeah, and I feel like it's a shame for listeners that this is an audio medium because, you know, I'm looking at you, you're recording your side of the conversation on your mobile phone, but you've also got a big version of a mobile phone behind you. How many phones are in the collection in the mobile phone museum? Which one's your favourite and which one is the most unusual?
0: Well, what a fantastic question and one I get asked a lot. So for anyone interested in looking at how many phones we've got, you can go to mobilephonemuseum.com and we have a counter on the front page. And today it is saying that in terms of unique devices, logged in our archive, we now have 2,374. In total, we have well over 5,000, but that includes duplicates. We feel it's very important to keep those unique devices. In terms of favourite phone, my heart is certainly with some of the early Nokia phones. And I think the Nokia... Nokia 2110, which was my first phone, which is one of the first very functional GSM phones, has a special place in my heart. And another one that I'm very fond of is the Motorola V70, which was almost like a piece of jewelry. Funnily enough, you could wear it around your neck. But there's so many devices, it's very hard to pick one in particular as a favorite. But if you pin me down, probably the Nokia 2110 one particular product line which is fascinating was from the German company Siemens who set up a fashion brand called Exilibri and they released phones along the similar lines to the fashion industry so they'd have a spring collection and an autumn collection they only ever managed two collections four in the spring and four in the autumn and those devices are really curious products a whole weird and wonderful range of devices that could be worn around your neck clipped onto your products very much fashion led the venture proved to be unsuccessful but it was hugely pioneering. There's some other devices in there that mean a lot to me. The luxury devices from a company called Virtu, which is a really interesting story. It was a fashion-led high-end luxury division of Nokia, which jumped on the idea that phones could be like Swiss watches and people would pay a lot of money to have a very unique device with the finest materials. And another one which is hugely important is a model that we had made for the launch of the mobile phone museum in November 2021, which was a model of the Ericsson phone used by by Piers Brosnan in the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies which if you remember that film he drove a BMW 7 Series from the back seat of the car and he had other things like a stun gun on it and we have a fully functional model in terms of all of the mechanics which actually was never made for the film because manufacturing techniques at that point meant that they were made out of wood or metal or whatever whereas now with the ability to print designs and the ability to generate designs using computer aided design the company, the partners that we worked with to deliver that, were able to create a model with all of the functions working, which was amazing.
1: That's fascinating. Technology manufacturers often try to market their products by playing up the innovation angle. Is this still true or has innovation slowed down in recent years and become more of a marketing tactic?
0: you hit on something really important that the honest truth at the moment is phones have got pretty boring since Steve Jobs walks onto the stage in San Francisco in January 2007 and pulled the iPhone out of his pocket and that really established this dominant design of the black rectangle with a touch screen and a camera on the back and that's the world that we've lived in so for me the kind of Cambrian explosion of innovation was that period from 1985 through to 2007-2008 where we saw a weird and wonderful eclectic mix of design diversity moving from candy bar phones to flip phones to sliders to rotating devices phones that look like camcorders there really was an incredible amount going on. And the only glimmer of hope right now is the growing number of flexible display devices. So we're seeing a growing range of products with folding displays. You know, harking back to the old days of the clamshell phones with flexible displays where you can take that phone form factor we have today. And fold it in half or alternatively now devices from companies like Samsung where you can take a phone and you can open it out so you have a phone first and foremost but then a mini tablet like an iPad mini in your hand as well. There is innovation but it's much more incremental these days so we don't see those big step changes in terms of better screens, better cameras, better memory, those sorts of things. That's somewhat slowed down unfortunately in the world of phones.
1: Right. Yeah. Now it's more about like if it's a different color or things like that, which don't necessarily have anything to do with performance or functionality. From your experience handling all of these devices is there a period of time when phones were at their most repairable?
0: I would say that it depends on the things you're talking about. One of the two biggest challenges at the moment are what breaks on phones. The screens break which is a challenge to get those repaired and the batteries start to lose their performance over time. They're big factors in people replacing phones and the things that people want to repair. So let's just analyse those two things. In the case of screens of course when you have had smaller phones with little displays and you think of the old you know nokia 3310 you know almost indestructible devices almost feel like you could throw it off a building or if it fell out of your pocket you wouldn't have that heart-stopping moment in those days that meant that they weren't necessarily more repairable but they were more robust and therefore there was less danger of breakage in terms of repairability i guess the ability to be able to just flip the back off a phone and pop out a battery and get a new battery to give that phone more life going forwards was a major, major benefit. And once we went into these really integrated sealed designs where you need a heat pad to get the back off a phone and you have to navigate through all sorts of intricate electronics components to eventually get to the battery, to prize it out, to be able to replace it if you can even source a legitimate battery. But I would also make the argument that we're starting to see some wonderful moves in the mobile phone market now in terms of moving back towards a more sustainable, repairable world where companies like Fairphone, who I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware of, are working ever so hard to get to the point where we have more modularity in devices and you can easily replace the battery, but then do other things like upgrade the camera, replace the USB-C port and easily replace the screen yourself. And in the vein of the Restart project, that phone is an absolute dream and arguably is the most repairable phone we've ever seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Fairphone comes up very regularly on this podcast. And so how do you ensure the longevity of the devices in your collection? Are maintenance and repair a part of routine work that you're doing for the Mobile Phone Museum?
0: When you've got old artefacts, they do deteriorate. So the single biggest challenge we have at the Mobile Phone Museum is the batteries. The really early nickel metal hydride and nickel cadmium batteries are prone to leaking. And if the batteries leak, they can do untold damage to the devices themselves. The later lithium-ion batteries are prone to, in some cases, kind of expand and pop, and that can damage the integrity of the device. But storing the devices is a challenge as well, because when you've got thousands of devices with lithium-ion batteries, it's not something you can just keep in your garage or put them in a big yellow storage facility or whatever. You need to have professional storage. And we're very lucky to be working with a company called Genuine Solutions, who are one of our supporters who provide specialist storage for the phones. In terms of repair and maintenance, the Mobile Phone Museum, is very much orientated around the physical design of the phones rather than having thousands of phones that all still work because when we conceived the project we felt that that was almost unrealistic you know being able to keep devices that are 30 or 40 years old still in fully working condition was always going to be a challenge so we, we made a kind of philosophical decision that it would be all about the design in some cases they do work but for every phone we do where we can remove the batteries and keep the batteries separate to avoid any kind of damage and then For some of the older phones where there's deterioration, for example, the curly cords on some of the big transportable phones will perish. And on those devices, we sometimes will replace those, not with a functional curly cord that would allow the phone to work, but using something like a curly cord from a guitar amp, for example, which looks exactly the same. So it keeps it true to what the device looked like originally, but means that we've got a very good-looking example of that phone from its era.
1: Right, that's really interesting. How do you hope that the collection can be used... To educate people?
0: Well, this is a fantastic question and really plays to another pillar of the Mobile Phone Museum. So the Mobile Phone Museum is first and foremost about preserving the history, this very important social history of mobile phones and the design story and the evolution of phones and their functionality. And so that's one pillar of it. But the other thing is around education. So to apply to be a charity, and we're a fully registered charity with the Charity Commission here in the UK, we had two pillars. It was safeguarding social history and education. And for education, there's the obvious one of providing access to all of these devices online, giving people access to high-quality pictures so they can look and reminisce about the devices, and trying to write up the story of those devices. And not just it had this camera and this spec and this battery, more what was the story behind the device? Why was it conceived like this? What went well? What didn't work? Who were the individuals who were involved in that? And there's some great examples on the website. For example, the Motorola StarTAC Rainbow device, where we've got a really great story of these coloured plastics which were left over from a different foam project and a group of engineers saying, hey, we could make a really cool foam with all different rainbow colours along the lines of the uh, Polo Harlequin from Volkswagen. And then also going into schools. So we hope that the mobile phone museum collection can inspire the next generation of designers and engineers, particularly amongst women and girls, with regards to trying to get them more interested in technology, and also celebrating the amazing technology breakthroughs that occurred here in the UK. Vodafone, our lead sponsor for the mobile phone museum, was the pioneer. They made the first public mobile phone call in January 1985. We saw all sorts of companies like Arm, who developed of the processor technology that's in mobile phones still today and there's even some notable companies that had manufacturing in the UK like Panasonic and others. So we take the collection into schools. We try and get the schools to understand or the pupils to understand why communication is so important, how to responsibly use phones. And also we're doing a workshop now around sustainability and repairability. And the pandemic rather limited our ability to go out to the schools. We're now piloting that program again and we've visited already this year four different schools where we've gone in and the pupils have been so excited to see the devices and even trying to explain to them how you make a phone call using a phone with buttons is quite amusing.
1: Yeah, it must be really interesting to young people now to see phones. I don't know if it's been making me feel old or young. I'm a little bit older than mobile phones, but not much. But at the same time, I didn't get a phone till 2000 and I remember what phones were like. I remember those bricks. I remember flip phones and What a phone is now is such a different thing. It's got everything in the palm of my hand. And I do really appreciate that. As much as I don't like the fact that there's now hundreds of ways people can communicate with me at any moment in any day. I do like being able to look things up and edit things and do all of the things I do on my phone. And somebody else will do completely different things on their phone. It's really interesting to think that young people come into these early phones. It's almost like kind of looking at dinosaur bones. It must be
0: very strange. And I think we've very much transitioned and we moved from this kind of voice interaction with a phone to a visual interaction with a phone. It moved from being at your ear to something you looked at. And now we have a whole generation of users who never, ever make a phone call. The phone is now the computer in your pocket. It's the most prolific consumer electronics device on the planet. This year, globally, rather alarmingly, there'll be 1.5 billion mobile phones give or take sold. That's 42 every second. That's a lot of phones that are out there in the market that need to be responsibly disposed of or repaired, or can we find ways to make people use them longer? But equally, they're providing huge utility, and almost not having a phone now will almost kind of reinforce this terrible digital divide that we're starting to see, You know, particularly during the pandemic, where if you went to a restaurant, you couldn't order because you needed to scan the QR code, or you couldn't pay because there was an expectation that you would use contactless. So the phone is an integral part of society on numerous levels today, which is fascinating and such a quick evolution as well.
1: Yeah, so CCS Insight released a report in December 2021 on mobile phone buyers, and you found that four in 10 people bought their phone because of necessity, you know, very much what we've already started to talk about there how does this statistic differ from previous years do you see this as having an effect on industry practices going forward
0: I mean I think a phone being a necessity remains a driving force these days you can walk out of the house and if you slam the door shut and you haven't got your keys or your wallet if you've got your phone you're in pretty good shape I think the more interesting research we've done recently at CCS Insight is our connected consumer radar where we're looking very much at the sentiments that consumers have towards all the connected devices in their lives and we We go out every two months to a nationally representative sample of consumers in the UK, Germany, Spain, and the US. And there's some fascinating stats coming back there. Compared to 12 months ago, we now see that 57% of consumers are more conscious about the impact that their purchases are making on the environment, which I think is an astonishing number. It shows, again, the quick progress we're making. People are keeping devices for longer, particularly some of the more... What I would say, you know, easily replace devices like mobile phones, where we used to see a replacement cycle of say eighteen months, because you'd have a contract for eighteen months. The phones would really dramatically change, and you'd really feel like you wanted to upgrade to the next one. Now we're seeing an average length of ownership on phones of around four years, and I think that's a reflection of phones becoming more durable. Waterproofing has been a big thing. A lot of phones used to come to it at the end of their life when they got dropped down a toilet or something awful like that. Also, sixty-four percent of the people we talk to about their connected devices are saying that they will continue using that device until it breaks. And that's something we've seen in the past with white goods like washing machines and refrigerators and and a little bit with things like TVs. But with some of those other devices, that wasn't always the mentality. So I think that's a very, very encouraging statistic that we're starting to see coming back from consumers.
1: Right. I mean, and and I guess it's like part of all of that is that because there's not a massive difference in functionality and what you can do with your phone and also it's very personal things like a phone it's not just a computer in our hands it's a photo album in our hands it's a for me it's like my notebooks it's my mind it's my way of thinking and remembering things and so to have to change all of that is less and less appealing. You know, it's like a guitar. You don't buy a new guitar necessarily because you get to love what the guitar that you're using does. It's a personal connection to you. And I think phones feel a little bit more like that than they did in the 2000s.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I would say, I mean, I get what you're saying about what a personal device the mobile phone is. The difference with the guitar is a guitar is probably something that would last a lifetime, potentially, particularly if something like an acoustic guitar. Whereas with something that's an electronics product, there's more and more talk about the idea of a 10 year phone. that would last for 10 years, that would be amazing. We're starting to get towards that five years. And Fairphone, who we mentioned before, are already up to about seven years in terms of making the phones last. But making a phone last is much more than just the physical aspects of the device, the actual, you know, the building, the construction, the physical screen and the casing and everything else. It's as much about can the chipset support the new versions of the software, which typically become more obese and more demanding in terms of processing power? And can the software be maintained and be kept up to date? And of course, the most crucial element of that, again, linking back to your point about personal information is, can you get the security updates onto the device? And right now, it's very, very encouraging to see phone manufacturers starting to say that they will support updates for at least 4 years in many cases of those software patches and security updates. Apple regularly now support 5 generations of iPhone going back and that's also hugely important for that more circular economy of second-hand devices. And that's an area where we're also seeing some tremendous progress. So if I go back to our Connected Consumer Radar survey, 45% of people we spoke to across those four countries said that they would now consider using a second-hand device. It was over 50% for people in the 16 to 34-year-old age group. So they're certainly more motivated to look at second-hand devices, which I think is just a phenomenal statistic.
1: Yeah. So do you see a shift in general in the way that people view their technology? As you've touched on, consumers seem to be becoming more environmentally conscious. What are the ways in which that's happening?
0: Well, repairability is massively important. Again, we've touched on that already, but let me give you another fantastic stat. 74% of the consumers we spoke to would be interested in repairing a device in the future if they could do it at a reasonable cost. We asked a sub-question on that, which was, why do you want to do that? A lot of people just said, well, it's just a good thing to do. But 34% of people said it was specifically to help the environment. But repairability is becoming a major factor. And of course that is going to dictate and require design changes to make those devices easier to repair. And your fantastic campaign for the right to repair, which we're starting to see, you know, legislation and regulatory interest around the world that's driving that forward is is hugely, hugely positive. And then, of course, devices that last longer is important. We've touched on that on the software, but it's the whole design philosophy around a device, making sure that you have that ongoing support. And around half of the consumers we spoke to cited that as the single biggest thing that phone manufacturers could do to help with the environment. And then they said more energy-efficient devices. So that was interesting. About 38% of people said that. And easier repairs came up again in terms of around 35% of people said they want devices that are easier to repair because they feel that would help the environment. So some really good forward momentum.
1: Right. There's like a double thing, isn't there, with repairability? It's environmental and it's also financial. Yes. Earlier this year, you shared CCS Insights' fear that the desire for more prolonged use and repairability will fall on deaf ears as the electronics industry doesn't have a big vested interest in prolonging its product life cycles, nor is it particularly beneficial to them to make their products more repairable at present. How can the industry be convinced that this issue is bigger than their profits?
0: That's the big question, isn't it? And I I would stand by my observations on that insofar as when you look at that amazing number of phones that will be sold this year, that stat I gave you earlier of 1.5 billion mobile phones, that's a huge economy on its own. And of course, for any big phone maker, their business is predicated on selling you a phone, getting a margin on that phone, And then hoping you'll come back and you'll buy another one. So what can be done about that? Well, there's a number of different dimensions to it. One of the things is it may well be that in some markets there is a desire to have the latest and greatest. But what you've got to make sure is that the devices that get abandoned are reused. So there is an element of a circular economy that there is a responsible take-back program that those devices get back into the supply chain. They can be refurbished, re-warrantied, pushed back out through other channels, maybe catering for people who need something that's more affordable. So they're having a what in the industry would be called an N plus 1 or N plus 2, which is the number of years since it was a new device. The mobile phone manufacturers and consumer electronics manufacturers more generally need to find a business model that will help them to continue supporting older phones as well because there is a cost to them to keep maintaining those software updates and keeping the spare parts and all of those different aspects. And Apple, who, you know, come in for criticism, but also I think, you know, should be acknowledged that they have worked very hard not only to make huge commitments to software updates, and that's a lot easier for them because they control all aspects of the phone. They control the chipset, the software, and all of the other aspects of the hardware. But what they've managed to do is actually turn the iPhone into almost a gift that keeps on giving for them because whether you buy one that's secondhand or even third hand or fourthhand, you can still be revenue-generative to Apple because if you're using iPhone, iCloud to use some storage or you're using Apple Music or you're transacting with Apple Pay or you're subscribing to Apple TV. These are all ways where they get an ongoing revenue from a phone that could be many years older. But overall, the biggest thing I think is going to be consumer activism. It is going to be consumers actually saying to mobile phone manufacturers, this just isn't acceptable. We do want devices that are more durable, more repairable and have a greater lifetime in terms of, you know, software and capability and security.
1: Some manufacturers are starting to announce making spare parts available to the public, but none of them like to talk about the price of these spare parts. Should repair become more affordable and accessible?
0: I think repair will become more affordable and accessible, but it's it's a chicken and egg problem. So firstly, you have to have devices that are specifically designed to make that easier. But obviously, there's a huge amount of risk trying to repair some of these really intricate devices that weren't really designed with a huge repairability philosophy in mind. So we need to get that step change that it is easier to get into a phone and change the battery or change the screen. And equally, as that grows and that scale grows, one would like to think that it would become a more attractive thing for manufacturers to do. And therefore, that could drive down the price of spare parts. But right now, it is expensive and there is a certain amount of reticence by the manufacturers to make spare parts available and certainly a real reticence to allow people to use non-genuine spare parts, which is often the least cost route to repairing a device. The other factor is, of course, going to be legislative. It's going to be regulators and legislators mandating repairability and the efforts around the right to repair movement has seen this starting to happen, whether it's the US administration or particularly the European Union, who have been extremely proactive in trying to support this. And I think that we are seeing some genuine progress. Even the harmonization around charging ports, for example, where we're seeing a growing number of devices with a USB-C port, and even, you know, some speculation in recent weeks that Apple might go in that direction as well. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if we could have one universal charging port on devices in terms of sustainability and longevity of devices?
1: Right, and convenience. Customers of all mobile phones will be happier if they can swap their charging options with each other across different companies. And so I guess that that's sort of touching on this, but are, are there any trends or changes in phone design development that make you hopeful about repairability in the future?
0: Absolutely. We see the flag bearers with Fairphone, but we're starting to see some other initiatives. So Samsung have made announcements with both the Orange Group in France and T-Mobile in Germany, which are both global telecoms players. They're going to start working with them to offer more sustainable, more repairable devices. And that will mean more modular devices as well, particularly the ability to easily access and replace the battery, which is a key one. We're seeing companies like HMD Global who use the Nokia brand now, who are firmly committed to more durable devices, which means you know hopefully they will last longer and more regular updates with regards to software. So those are steps that we're seeing which I think are hugely encouraging with regards to making phones more repairable and making that vision of devices that can be used for longer and are really relied upon given how important they are in people's lives a reality one dimension we didn't talk about but I think is very interesting on mobile phones is the impact they're going to have on our health not the paranoia about new technologies and 5g and those sorts of things but more about the positive impact that devices are going to have on our health and I think that the ongoing monitoring of people you look at some of the wearable devices we have now which could detect if you've got a problem with your heart something like atrial fibrillation or help diabetics which we're not at that stage yet but the idea of being able to help a diabetic measure their bloods and make sure that their insulin levels are correct I think technology is going to have a big positive impact in that area and that's just another dimension of where I think connected technology manufacturers need to work harder to make sure that phones act more as a force for good that's an area that I'm watching with great interest and then the other thing would be you alluded to what does the future hold and I think for me, specifically going back to mobile phones, I do think that we are moving towards an interesting period of more design diversity as people experiment with flexible display technology. But of course, with that comes the juxtaposition of those devices are unlikely to last as long right now and will be very very difficult to repair so much as as a technologist i'm excited about them Yeah, you know, maybe more of the efforts from companies like fairphone are some of the most exciting trends and also some of these consumer trends i've shared with you where consumers are much more conscious about the environment are going to lobby major manufacturers of all types of devices to take a more responsible approach
1: It is so encouraging to hear that consumer trends across the global north are pointing towards a growing call for sustainability and the ability for us to be able to repair our devices. It does seem that as pressure grows and more people join the movement towards the right to repair, it will eventually be impossible for the industry not to act. It is also great that Ben can use the collection to remind us that repairable and long-lasting phones are possible and, in fact, were at one point the norm. Hopefully, continued pressure from repair activists around the world will put people and planet at the centre of innovation for smartphones, making our devices more repairable and long-lasting. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM And a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website And found wherever you get your podcasts as with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project. Org, where we've also set up a fundraiser so if you've enjoyed this episode do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast the music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound and big thanks to Restart's communications producer Holly who does the research and the planning for the podcast And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.